I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Hello and welcome to our third FT Science Show. The big research news of the past week, or indeed of the year, or indeed of the decade if you believe the hype, is the creation of the first synthetic life. We'll be talking later about Cynthia, as some have dubbed the synthetic microbe. But before that, we'll be discussing Andrew Wakefield and his discredited MMR research, and also how the UK's new coalition government is treating science. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. We welcome back Diana Garnham, who's Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, as a studio guest. Hello, Diana. Good morning, Clive. Thanks for coming in again. We're also joined by Fiona Godley, editor of the British Medical Journal. Welcome, Fiona. Thanks, Clive. It's good to be here. And the FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, Andrew Jack, is with us as usual. Hello, Andrew. Hello there. We're going to talk first about your visit to the General Medical Council in London yesterday, where you heard Andrew Wakefield being formally struck off the medical register after being found guilty of serious professional misconduct. What did the GMC say about Wakefield and his research linking autism to the MMR vaccine? Well, the key message, I think, that came out, and of course this is 12 years after the whole Andrew Wakefield saga began, was that this judgment of the General Medical Council was nothing to do with the science of any connection between autism and the MMR vaccine. It was a issue of ethical conduct. And here was a researcher who had uh, essentially concealed a whole series of conflicts of interest, had commercial interests in a particular approach, indeed, including an experimental vaccine, and had undertaken a whole series of experimental and, as the GMC judged, unnecessary interventions on children. He took blood, he authorised spinal taps and so on. Um, and so regardless of what the underlying research objective might have been, um, what was at stake here was that unethical conduct. And what was perhaps striking to me was to see that Wakefield, who I think got a bit of an easy ride and sort of rode the media and was given a lot of publicity again in the build-up to and just after this judgment, tried to divert that back to this issue of him as an outsider fighting for truth around that long-rejected notion of a connection between the two. Yes, the Today programme on BBC Radio gave him, I thought, much too much time to promote his views. Fiona, what did you make of it? Well, I think Andrew's exactly right to highlight the fact that the actual judgment of the GMC related to the ethics. But I think we absolutely have to keep our eye on the science here. And the science is extremely poor. The study itself that was retracted by The Lancet just recently was in 12 children. And the link between bowel symptoms, autism and the measles vaccine was very tenuous and was purely related to the concerns that parents had raised. 
So I think the concern now is that although Wakefield has been discredited on ethical grounds, people will continue to refer back to this as science still proving a link, which I think the vast body of literature, in fact, every credible research work that I'm aware of, speaks entirely against. Diana? I think this is about engaging properly with the key audiences, which is going to remain the new generation of parents where this story sticks. I think there was a a key um, message for ordinary journalists, as it were, in the mainstream media and how they need to be very sensitive. Of course, Wakefield's initial most controversial claims were made at a press conference rather than in the detailed paper that was published by The Lancet. But of course, there is also that message, isn't there, Fee, it seems to me, that for the mainstream media, clearly there is a reputation and authority around these well-respected academic and medical journals. Do you think there are any lessons more generally for that community? Well, I think, to be fair to The Lancet, it is hard for journals because one simply does have to, at the moment, take on trust the work that's delivered to you. Uh, But I think in answer to your question, I think the journals absolutely have to think much harder about verifying the information that's coming their way, looking at the data. Do you think it's actually changed the way the BMJ now looks at particularly controversial public health sorts of submissions, academic papers? Well, without wanting to go off the point here, Andrew, as a pharmaceutical um, editor, you, you all know that certainly there's a big push to try to get much more data from drug companies about the research they're publishing. And actually, we do take a vast amount on trust, huge conflicts of interest, vast sums of money involved. Um, and often drugs, uh, and the current one that's under investigation is Tamiflu, okayed by public health based on information that only the drug company had access to. So, I mean, I think that's absolutely wrong, has to change. Diana, what can the wider scientific community do? Well, I thought it was very interesting that Fiona went through all of the different levels of checks and balances that should be in the system for publishing research. You've got ethics committees, you've got supervisors, you've got the panels and the funders, all making decisions based on different levels of peer review and engaging different people. What's remarkable is how does all of that fail when we introduce all of these things into the system so that people can question and check? And I think you're right that the journals have to rely on the bit behind the research also working. What's unusual about this case is that it failed all the way through through the system. And that lets down the users of the science. I mean, if you look at it from the point of view of the public, the, the general journalists, the parents, they all rely on this. And so it isn't just the journals. We have to point the finger at the academic community far more generally. I, I would agree with that. And since we're on a, a newspaper podcast, I mean, there's also the role of the media. How do they weigh up the single maverick against the establishment? And and you mentioned earlier, Clive, the fact that um, actually he was given a lot of airtime. But actually, there's a thing in the media, isn't it, about trying to give balance. So you give the pro and the con. Now, at some point, that has to shift to say to make it clear to the public that, that the overwhelming majority of information is is in support of this fact and safety, and you have one person standing against. But do you give them equal airtime? I'm just going I'm approaching this at a slightly different angle. I do think what strikes me is how little the employers knew of what Andrew Wakefield was actually doing and the, the range Royal of interest free, you mean. at the Royal Free. And I wondered whether the commitment to annual appraisal for doctors and continuous professional development and this sort of regular reporting of your interests and what you're learning and who you're working with might help. I'm sure that it will be yet another check, uh, whether whether it will, uh, you know, as, as with Shipman, whether revalidation would prevent the Harold Shipman case. People are quite dubious of that. But actually, I, I'm sure it would be another check, another hurdle. And I think that... Um, what you have with um, Andrew Wakefield is certainly someone very credible, certainly someone dealing with an important issue. There's no doubt that autistic children and their parents are perhaps poorly served at the moment by science and, and who can blame them for seeking what help they can find. 
but I'm sure you're right that if this was more systematised, and in particular the idea that people would, would have to declare their conflicts of interest and update a public record of those every year, I, I think that has to help, and we should be calling for that. Well, lots of lessons for everyone to learn from the Wakefield case, from the mass media to the specialist medical regulators to the hospitals, everyone. Let's move on now to politics. And I'd like to talk about what Britain's new Conservative Liberal Coalition government is doing to science and research. Now, Diana, you and I were both at the Royal Society last week when the great and the good of science gathered to discuss the new political landscape. What did you make of the evening? I thought it was a a fantastic evening, a really showcase sort of event. But there was a huge level of consensus, actually, especially from the platform where people talked about global competition, the need to invest both in curiosity-led research but to focus much more on how we translated that. Almost everybody mentioned how poor the UK is at all sorts of levels at translating science into outcomes. And I thought that it was quite a boost to hear from the new science minister who was one of the first times I've ever heard a minister come and speak at that sort of gathering and not apologise for not being a scientist. That's David Willits, we should say. He gave as good as he got and reminded the science community that he's not the shop steward. And I think that that strongly threw the ball in our court to look at how we operate as a community to come up with a greater degree of cohesion and consensus in the way we work with government. I think that's a big challenge. I didn't hear any of the scientists speaking, accepting the need for cuts. They were, in effect, saying, we're a special case, and of course they won't be a special case. I'm sure some of them will try and argue they are, and I'd love to take all the leading scientists and lock them in a dark room and say, OK, you've got you know 12 hours to come up with 10% of cuts, or a good, strong case for the fact that you should be immune from cuts. But I think the reality is we haven't made the case for being immune from cuts. Those cuts are beginning to happen through the university system. We're seeing changes in regional funding, which will also affect research investment and in the business department where obviously the startups and the investment in translational companies may also hit so we do need to think about these things differently and in a much more joined up way. Fiona what's the view in the world of medical science about this government and what it's likely to do and what it should be doing? Well, I'm very interested in the idea of any sector of society being immune from these cuts. Um, And coming back to science in a moment, I'm very struck by the idea that health should be immune from these cuts. I mean, you know, I think that there will always be savings one can make. Health should bear bear the brunt of of, of the cuts as well, um, provided it can be done without, as far as possible, damaging healthcare. And I have to say, I I can't believe that's not possible. I think there, there must be efficiencies or things that we could delay or areas where we are currently focusing on the wrong things. Yeah, it seems to me, certainly, I mean, you've had pharmaceutical industry, for example, as always having to restructure and find more efficient ways to develop drugs. I've seen also in the philanthropically funded parts of global health in the same way, budget squeezes, the pressures on endowments and so on have also forced the industry working in partnership with academia and research scientists to say, you know, how can we prioritise between two very expensive late stage trials, for example, without wasting money? And it does seem to me in the same way, though it's tragic and we'd all like there to be an upwards growth in in funding, this could be an opportunity to actually break down some of the barriers between academic departments and in getting them to collaborate more, actually deliver much more effective and relevant uh, research designs. 
I'm struck by the FT report on the university vice-chancellor saying that the cuts are going to fall on STEM departments. There is a lot of change that can be done in the introduction of in the way we teach undergraduates. And I was, I don't know whether people, other people are aware of the Melbourne University proposals, which is to actually streamline the entry into university, to streamline the way in which degrees are delivered, to have much greater focus on what sort of graduates they're trying to produce and who the users of those graduates might be, what the jobs are out there. And I'm not sure that enough of that thinking is going on in the universities. What we're seeing is a provider saying, well, this is how we do things and this is how we want to deliver them in the future. But actually, much greater dialogue around an increase in tuition fees may actually drive a change for the universities. Students do not want to do single subject science degrees in great numbers. We aren't seeing growth. So that in itself, the customer will drive a change. It just seems to me also that both in academia and in perhaps the NHS, an awful lot more needs to be done to incentivise promotion, merit and so on, based on the relevance of, the, first of all, encouraging research, but also the relevance of that research. Well, thanks very much. Sorry to cut you off, but we'll be returning to these broad issues of science, research, academic policy over the next few months, I'm sure. Now I'd like to move on to Science Magazine, because the journal's current issue carries the paper by Craig Venter and his colleagues, describing how they built up a bacterial genome from four bottles of chemicals and a DNA synthesizer, and got the genome to boot up a new synthetic cell. Over to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Clive. This week, controlling a cell via a synthetic genome. In a paper published online last week by Science, Craig Venter and colleagues report that they have been able to synthesize and slightly alter the genome from one bacterial species and transplant it into another bacterial species. The result? a growing, dividing, living cell controlled by a synthetic genome. Venter is a biologist and entrepreneur with offices in the states of Maryland and California. Once the new chromosome is in that recipient cell, all the traces of that recipient species disappear within a few rounds of replication. But, Venter adds, these kinds of transplantations are specific to just these two species of bacteria. One of the things we want to do now is see how extendable this transplantation process is across at least microbial biology. With at least one goal of making microorganisms capable of producing vaccines or biofuels, Venter says it would only take a few months to make a new 1 to 2 million base pair chromosome, as they have already done with this bacterium, The challenges where we have to debug each system is in the recipient biological system that it can read that particular DNA and convert it into a new cell. So we will probably have to work out that biology for each new system. And that could take a lot more time and money, says Mark Badeau. Badeau is editor-in-chief of the scientific journal Artificial Life. These bacteria that he has created a prosthetic genome for are so much simpler than even, you know, even much simpler than any eukaryotic form of life. You know, a simple one-celled organism that has a nucleus. Bacteria are, of course, much simpler than those. But, Badeau says, Venter and his team have passed a major milestone in the quest to use simple forms of life in ways that are socially and economically valuable. It seems to me that we've just entered an age in which entirely synthetic genomes and increasingly synthetic 
forms of life become a biological reality. The reason you might say this is not a new form of life is that it's just a new way of making an old form of life, the species that has the genome that he copied. Still, Venter's team's scientific achievement raises a lot of questions about life itself, medical advances, environmental concerns, security risks. I asked Badeau. Are there concerns? Should there be policies in place to kind of keep this stuff from, quote-unquote, getting out of the lab? Absolutely. There are a number of sort of social and ethical implications of this that are significant. Some of them are pitfalls we want to avoid, and some of them are opportunities we wanted to take advantage of. Coinciding with the online publication of Venter's work, President Obama requested a commission study both the prospects of important benefits and genuine concerns of this emerging field of synthetic biology and report back within six months. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Trederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. Fiona, if you were on President Obama's commission looking at all these issues, what would you be focusing on? Well, I think, first to say, I think this is extremely exciting. I don't think anyone interested in science could hear this news and not be excited. Uh, But obviously, there are enormous potential risks to uh, this kind of development. And I suppose, therefore, one would want to understand the immediate risks, which I think probably are very small, given the fact that this is just a a single uh, cellular organism. And as, as was said on the, on the package just there, that there's a, a, a long, long way to go before one's talking about, I would imagine, medical or even future scientific benefit. I think one of the issues will be who should benefit from this. And I, I was very struck by the comments that I heard on the radio this morning about the concern about patenting this um, discovery and the potential for um, it being used for commercial profit as opposed to public good. And I think that would be an enormous worry because um, it might be hard to define exactly what was being patented here. I know that some people are very concerned about patenting. I'm less so because I remember all the fears about how the private sector human genome project racing with the public one, um, all the concerns that they would tie up the human genome in patents and Craig Venter would control it. That turned out not to be true. Obviously, there is going to be a patent battle over this. There is over any exciting new technology. But maybe I'm being complacent, but I'm, I'm not too worried about that. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson, uh, of course, it's now already a decade ago, and in terms of all the hype at the moment about, you know, how this could very rapidly revolutionized medicine. We've got to remember genomics is still in its infancy and hasn't led to a vast number of practical medical applications thus far. And it's true, I think there's been a number of reversals. There were some attempts, particularly around diagnostic tools to patent to control the technology and the swing I think of both public opinion and legal decision has been against that so I think you're right it hasn't been as dangerous in the short term to future innovation as people had feared but it clearly it is a practical issue that needs to be discussed I think. Diana how would you rate the exciting hyped up possibilities against the fears about synthetic biology? I think it's fascinating and I'm, I, I welcome the way the Americans have stepped in straight away to have a, an open discussion. I hope we can do the same in the UK. Well the Royal Society to be fair did have an open discussion and brought out a report and we're not doing too badly in talking about the issues here. I think, I think the Royal Society did a very good report but it needs a whole range of different translations to reach the population and to engage in debate and, but it would be a good topic for our new MPs, actually. Yes, it would. But we have to say that the Americans are leading by far in the science. 
the UK may be second, but it's a very distant second. In fact, the leading European synthetic biology company is Genart, which is a, a German company, but it's very much an American field at the moment, both in terms of doing the experiments and in terms of thinking about how to, how to regulate them. I think that's all we have time for today, so do join us next week to hear about the most compelling stories in the world of science, including a study about the public health benefits of major sporting events. Fiona, Diana, Andrew, and Robert in Washington, thanks very much for joining us, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by L.J. Felatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.